The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the final hurrah of a really great wangdoodle, and the discovery that the Grand Canyon is actually a giant alien pictograph that reads, Do Not Disturb, Sleeping In. wonder what's under that thing. We definitely ought to knock and find out. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor, Tony Daniel. This time we have David Weber in part three of our multi-part interview talking about uncompromising honor. That's David's new addition to the Honor Harrington series and a climactic book in the storyline. David talks all things honor and talks about the writing of the book and uh, some of the cool stuff that's in the book. So that's coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now, here's the news. There's new free fiction and nonfiction up this month at the Bain.com website. Check out our great free story and excellent nonfiction. These go up monthly. For October, we have free fiction set in the world of John Ringo's Black Tide Rising universe. It's by Mike Massa, who is the co-author with John Ringo of a new Black Tide Rising novel, The Valley of Shadows, coming in November. Mike is also a former Navy SEAL and current cybersecurity expert. The Resurrection of the Dead and the Life of the World to Come. The Pope is Dead, yet another victim of the deadly 873 virus, better known as the Zombie Plague. For weeks now, Vatican City has been on lockdown, yet a new Holy Father must be elected. But when the College of Cardinals locks itself inside the Sistine Chapel to select the Pope, they are accompanied by the devil in the form of, you guessed it, the 873 virus. Now Vatican City is besieged from within and without. It is up to the Swiss Guard to keep the ravening horde at bay and save the church from the clutches of darkness. Hey, nonfiction this month is also cool stuff. It's the start of a three-part series by Tom Crapman, who is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel, military and political thinker, and the author of the upcoming new addition to his Carrera science fiction series, A Pillar of Fire by Night. As A Pillar of Fire by Night, which is book seven in Tom Crapman's Carrera series, Hits shelves next month, we note that Crapman's novels are distinguished by his attention to detail in all matters military. It couldn't be in no other way with Tom Crapman. Now Tom details the philosophy behind the organization of the Crayerverse in a series of essays called Principles of Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Crayerverse. Yep, it's Tom Crapman on how to organize a way to win a long-term war which is a huge component of actually winning a war. Organization always helps, with lots of examples from his own fiction and the real world. Principles of Organization for War and Organizing for War in the Carreraverse by Tom Crapman and Sea of Darkness by Mike Massa, an all-new story in John Ringo's best-selling Black Tide Rising series, are available at the Bain.com website and then in the e-book collections Free Stories 2018 and Free Nonfiction 2018 Perpetually, which are free to download at Bain eBooks. 
This is the third part of an interview with David Weber talking about uncompromising honor. Part two is available in last week's podcast. I want to welcome David Weber to the podcast. Hello, David, once again. Hello, Tony. Other Tony. It's great to have you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's the main way. Well, at least you're probably the David. We have about 15 Davids here now. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, among others. He's had two, he's had, I don't know, I think 28, 29 New York Times bestsellers and 8 million books in print. In fact, Uncompromising Honor has uh, cracked the top 10 as of yesterday of the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if you heard about that, David. I'm sure you did, probably. I did. Marla told me. And the current number is 25 Bain titles that have cracked the list and 32 total, accounting seven from Tor in the Safe Hold series. Um, but this is only the third one to crack the top 10, though. Uh, the other two were uh, War of Honor and uh, A Rising Thunder. Well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see why that is um, in a moment, uh, because this is, a, this is a big culminating book in the series. Not the end of the series, but it's a, it's a hell of a big book in the series. Um, that book being uh, Uncompromising Honor, and the book is getting glowing reviews as well as in the usual places. The book is getting glowing reviews in the usual places, but there's a more unusual recent review. I thought I'd read a little excerpt of it because I thought it was really cool by Mark Vandroff of the Center for International Maritime Security. Actually, um, on actually, their actually, actually, Mark is not uh, with the Center for International Maritime Security. He is uh, in uh, surface warship design in the U.S. Navy, and he is uh, a contributor to the Center for International Maritime Security. Ah, uh, is that... That's not uh, Benign Mark, right? No. No, 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 no. That no, is Mark no. Gudis, uh, who is right. who's a who's wonderful lawyer. guy, but he's a lawyer, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so Mark uh, Vandroff says, Weber's books are enjoyable as fiction and profound as works of art. In them, great power competition makes its way into the space age on a galactic scale. Battles are described in vivid, suspenseful detail. Both sides grapple to do their duty as they understand it, and it is the human touches that make this book so gripping. Weber's fans will greatly enjoy Uncompromising Honor and be left eagerly awaiting the next installment of this magnificent series. Which I thought, it, it, it's really just a, a huge, great review in general. That was my favorite little uh, pull, pull out of it, which we've, uh, we've put on the uh, Amazon page, by the way. I, I was very, very flattered by, by Mark's uh, comments, um, especially given what he actually does for a living, if you know what I'm saying. With honor probably is trying to feed, the, read, feed Raul the green peas. Raul has... A little... Raul's her son... Yeah, Raul is her son. He's like uh, nineteen months, I think. Uh, he, he's not. He's not a two-year-old yet, at this point. And uh, she's like, "But Raul, you like green peas, <laughs> you know?" Um, and he wants spaghetti instead. Um, and 
And uh, it's, it's like Hamish says to her at one point, they can sense fear, you know. And she, without even looking at him, says, you so are not helping, and recites all of his given names, of which he has many. Uh, and Emily, at one point, says, says, you know, you two do realize that you're talking about feeding a child, not fighting a battle, don't you? And then she says, wait, wait, forget I said that. And Honor is like, yeah, truer words were never spoken. She has to... It's it's one of my favorite scenes, and anybody who's ever tried to feed a t- a, 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 a a toddler will understand exactly what she's going through here. Yeah, it's a little bit more difficult than defeating the Solarian League, perhaps. Well, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's uh, it goes back to what she was telling Megan after the Battle of Hypatia. You know. The trick is to defeat the enemy inside his own head. And Raul is stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Plus, Raul is basically being raised by tree cats, which no other human has ever been. Um, And it would appear that he is a chip off his mother's old block in terms of his ability to to hear the tree cats and even, even honor. And they don't know where this is going to lead. Um, you know, whether this is going to be like another step or, or, you know, how is this going to affect him, uh, growing up? Honor is confident that he can feel her emotions, even if he can't feel anyone else's at this point. And he's not two years old yet. She didn't develop the ability until she was in her forties. There's a lot going to, uh, ahead for Raul. I have a feeling with, uh, with tree cat, uh, in human relationships, if they're cre- created an ambassador of sorts. In the original game plan, Honor was supposed to die in at all costs, um, which was, and then the war with the Solarian League wasn't supposed to happen for another 20 years. But Eric Flint screwed it all up. Um, we brought, we, we wound up bringing forward a storyline that we had, uh, that, it, it started unfolding almost 30 years earlier than I had intended it to in my original visualization of the cosmic all, to quote mentor of Aresia. Um, and so if honor had died and at all costs, what was supposed to happen is that Raul and Catherine, uh, his, his uh, sister, his sister, who is actually um uh an in vitro child of Emily and Hamish would have been the Harrington viewpoint figures when the, the Mason alignment intruded into the open, when the war with the Solarian League began, etc. Um but I didn't have the twenty years and so I just I realized that I couldn't kill Honor off. And I won't pretend that I was heartbroken by that. I'd originally projected the series to only go to about six books, and I hadn't expected uh, Honor to become as important to both the readership and to me um, as it as as she has. Um, the um, uh, the I guess the the um, one of the consequences, too, is that the Solarian League was supposed to have 20 years to get a little more of a clue 
as to what had happened to the warfighting technology in the in in the Haven sector, which is the Solarian League term for the space that Manticore and Haven both occupy. Um, in, in which case, the Solarian League fleet would not have been as outclassed as it was um, on a ship-for-ship basis, uh, the way that things actually worked out. But initially, the characters, the junior officers introduced in uh, Shadow of Saganami, the book that also introduces Avars Terakoff and whatnot, would have been the captains of the ships that the officers, Raoul and, and Catherine's age, would have been serving on in the war against the Solarian League. So I had to sort of uh, uh, modify uh, where and how I got to where I am. And like I say, you know, I can't I can't complain that Honor is still alive, but Honor is also now much too senior to be sent on death rides anymore. You know, you can't send her in a heavy cruiser to take on a battle cruiser because she'd have to take Grand Fleet with her, and who am I going to find that can take out the entire Grand Fleet um, uh, sort of thing. So it is unlikely that we're going to see honor in a lot of space-going commands going forward, uh, assuming that I pursue that part of the storyline, which I am not certain in my own mind that I'm going to at this point. Um, of course, we just gave away whether or not she survives the book, I suppose. But um, what, what I was going to say is that any novel that Honor appears in going forward from this, from this point in time, if I do stories set earlier that she's a secondary character in, that's one thing. But any novel that she appears in going forward from this point, she's going to be kind of like Lessa and Flar from Pern. Okay, she's going to be like the, the, the senior, this you know, this a, a lord of admiralty, you know, uh, the head of uh, the academy or whatever. She's going to be one of the, the strategists, one of the planners, and maybe the commander of Grand Fleet again. But unless they find a really nasty opponent for Grand Fleet to go up against, she's going to be primarily sending, choosing the blades to send out to actually fight the war, if you see what I'm saying. Well, I mean, in a way she's doing it this book, but you've, you've found a way to, uh, to give her that, uh, that, that commander moment as well, which is, um, really just a wonderful, uh, wonderful scene in the book. Um, it's a, so honor story comes to a big moment in the book, um, as we've alluded to, um, I know you've thought about, you know, and you've thought about these. How is that to write? Because this is, as we've said, this might be the big moment of, you know, unless you wipe the face of Manticore clean again, which you've done before, <laughs> you know. Uh, this, this. Well, the the last section of of the book, uh, the section that you're that leads up to her big moment, um, it was hard to write. Um, because I knew going in what the death toll was going to be, if you follow me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was essential. Okay, from honor persistently from the beginning of the war 
has been a voice of moderation uh, in the Grand Alliance. And not because she loves Solarians. It's because you're talking about 1,800 star systems. Even if you defeat them, they're still going to be around. And if you give them a reason to really, really hate your guts, they will go away. They will do their R&D. They will duplicate your weapons. And then they will come back and they will turn your star kingdom into a parking lot. I mean, this is she's worried about revanchism on the part of a Solarian League which survives intact but is, is, is bloodied by massive casualties, especially massive civilian casualties. So she has been one of the people behind the economic warfare strategy. Uh, and in essence, what she's trying to do is to split the Solarian League. She's trying to come up with a situation in which star nations like Hypatia, like Beowulf, who are part of the Solarian League, star systems, who are member systems, will leave the League, um, in which even some of the core worlds may become so disgusted with the Mandarins that, that they split off from the Solarian League. Most of all, one in which the protectorates, everything in the frontier, uh, the verge, and the fringe, which are the, the, the concentric bands, if you will, of star systems around the core of the Solarian League, become competing power sources, centers, and whatnot. And in which the Solarian League will not be, may still be the biggest kid on the block, but there will be a lot of other kids on the block so that they can't just say, okay, now we're already we're going to go crush Manticore. This has been part of her strategy all along. Um, what happens in that section that was painful to write changes her mind. And it changes her mind because 40-plus million people get killed. And it's no longer a case of we can wake them out. The other thing that it does, and she realizes this even though it is not part of her formulated thinking. This is part of the subtext of her thinking. The incident, 40, 43 million dead, gives the Grand Alliance the moral justification to take the war to the Solarian League's home star systems. Especially if they can do it without killing millions of civilians. It will allow her to hurt the Solarian League very, very, very badly to convince it to see reason while still holding, for want of a better term, the moral high ground. Because what we did to you didn't kill millions of civilians. And you did. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it all kind of, it all kind of, uh, of comes together. And this is in fact, this, this last scene uh, with honor in the, in the commanding role is pretty much the scene that I had planned if Honor had been killed in, uh, in at all costs. 
except that the fleet commander would have been either Michelle Hinky or Avars Terakov. With Raoul as one of the uh, as one of the the senior uh, fleet commanders, and Catherine probably as the head of uh, or or one of the very senior officers in uh, naval intelligence back home. So I got to where I needed to be to wrap up the Salarian War arc. And also to wrap up the arc that began with Basilisk Station in terms of taking honor out of the the frontline command position, and I got to do it without killing her, and I consider that to be a major plus because I just really, really, I mean, I would I would have done it uh, in at all costs if it had not been for the uh, the shift in in the storyline, and I think readers would have forgiven me because of the way that she would have died, what she would have died achieving. If you remember at all costs, um, uh, Alistair McKeon uh, with a small, uh, a small squadron is, is instrumental in uh, the, in the, uh, the Manticoran Navy surviving long enough for honor to come through from Trevor Starr with the rest of Eighth Fleet and win the battle. Um, their roles were flipped in my original storyline. Uh, honor would have been the one commanding, and she would have had a few more ships than, than Alistair had, but Honor would have been the one commanding the desperately defending force until Alistair was able to get there to come to the rescue. And the reader would have found out, the reader would have known that Honor had been wounded um, before Alistair turns up. And after Alistair won the battle, he would have been, he would have, the reader would have found out she was dead the same way that Al, that she found out Alistair was dead in the book. It would have been Alistair, you know, uh, give me a comm link to Invictus, and you know, uh, let me speak to let me speak to the admiral. And Raphael Cardonis would have said, "We took a direct hit on Flagbridge. Lady Harrington didn't make it," and that would have been the mm-hmm. first confirmation that she was dead. And her last words would have been, "Tell the queen, for God's sake, let it end here." And that would be the reason that Elizabeth would have sent the peace mission to Haven that would have negotiated an end to the war before anybody had any clue the Mason alignment was out there or anything else. Um, and I think, like I say, that the readers probably would have forgiven me for that. I'm not sure, but I think they probably would have. You might have the the Rickenbach fall effect, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, you know, they all everybody already thought she was dead once. I would, you know, no, she's really dead this time, guys, you know. Um, but, yeah, it, um, and Nimitz would have died with her. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's um, like I said, I'm glad that she didn't, but it did leave me with some issues that had to be worked out uh, in the storyline. Yeah, and there's some. Uh, don't let anyone be fooled. There's some very heartrending moments here, as well, um, in the uh, in the f- in the final chapters of uh, Uncompromising. There are. I've so, had people you... threaten. <laughs> had people do what? I've had people threaten me over them. 
Yeah, it's like, oh, you know, you better not walk down any what? dark alleys in my hometown. <laughs> I don't think they mean it. I don't think they <laughs> Well, that leads me to a question I wanted to ask is you've been af- you've been interacting with a lot of folks um, in the last couple of weeks. You've been on a, a mini tour of sorts, maybe a major tour, um, who've read the book. Um I was wondering what they talk about with you and what they bring forward as their favorite stuff and what kind of questions they have. Um, well, actually, most of the folks that I saw, met on the tour um, were, e- were either in the process of reading it or hadn't read it yet. Now, there's my first readers list. They're the guys who get the manuscripts the same time that Bain gets them. And they're all the folks who got the e-arc from you guys who had read it, uh, but they hadn't seen the final version of it. And there are some, uh, there's some significant tweaks between the e-arc and the print version um, that doesn't affect the major aspects of the story, but it clarifies some things and it strengthens some elements. Um, I think that (laughs) probably Raul, and um, Damien Hirehop's encounter with tree cats uh, were were the two that got the most uh, the most uh, humorous attention, caused the most laughter. Um, Beowulf Alpha probably caused the most tears. Um, overall, I think that uh, folks were satisfied with. Um, Honor's solution to the Solarian problem um, and how it was presented. Um, probably it's tied up with what happened with Beowulf Alpha, but um, well, Beowulf Alpha is the second uh, large battle in the book, right? Yeah, well, okay, yes. No, it's we won't Beowulf say that. Alpha. Okay. No, Be- okay, no, 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 no. Beowulf Alpha is the major um, uh, orbital habitat um, of the Beowulf uh, star system. Um, and we're talking right. yeah. like uh, 15, 20 million people. Um, and I'll just say there is a battle in Beowulf. Uh, uh, in this book, um, and that the the consequences of that battle are what push Honor to change her position on the strategy of the uh, of the uh, Grand Alliance to the we can't sit around and wait anymore because God only knows what these people are going to do next is basically her logic. Now, there's some emotion involved in that, too, but her analysis is sound, whatever the reason for it. Mm-hmm. Well, what, uh, all right, you've, you've mentioned a few things you might do carrying the honorverse forward. What are, you, what are you working on now? What's going on in David Weber's writing Theoretically, at the end of this month, I'm supposed to hand you guys the sequel to um, Sword of the South. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
the, uh, the 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 signing schedule and the face plant in Atlanta and a few other things have. I lost a good solid month to concussion after I fell onto that cement floor in Atlanta. Um, I hadn't realized how bad it was uh, until like literally a month later. There's like a switch throwing, and all of a sudden my my thoughts cleared again. They're still not completely clear. I'm still having some issues. For, uh, and probably the amount of time I'm spending in front of computer screens isn't helping a lot uh, in that respect, but there you are. Um, okay, so my next solo project for Bain is um, going to be the sequel to um, Sword of the South. Um, Tony, other Tony, um, has um, has bought uh, the Gordian Protocol from me and uh, Jacob Holo, um, and we're doing cover art on it now. I don't think it's been scheduled yet. Uh, it's a, I think it's a May book or June book, uh, but it's, it, I'm pretty sure it's May. I think you probably will like it. I had a wonderful time writing it. It's very, uh, it's it's a it's a it's a me book, but it's different too. Um, I think that it, I think that it worked really well, and I think that it uh, will lend itself to sequels that don't have to be welded into a story arc like the Honor Harrington novels. They will grow naturally from what happens with the characters, not with my having to have a I'm starting at point A and working my way to point B uh, story arc. Um, Tim and Tim Zahn and Tom Pope and I are working on uh, A Call to Insurrection, the fourth uh, Travis novel. Um, we have had some health issues uh, delaying that, uh, but uh, I hope to get that out of here uh, pretty darn soon. Um, and Tony, other Tony, Tony Weisskopf, after... Uh, I don't know how many people who are listening to the podcast know that like a year and a half ago, I really, really hit a wall about the time that I was actually it would have been longer ago than that now I guess because it was about the time that we were finishing up um, Shadow of Freedom um, I was passing out I uh, I thought I was dozing off in my chair and we figured out what I was actually doing was coming to I was ordered out of my office for two months uh, which was good uh, and one of the things that came out of that is that Tony Weisskopf decided that she's not going to schedule any of my books now until she has the manuscript in hand. And this will accomplish a couple of things. One is if I do get behind schedule, it's not going to make a hole in the release schedule. And it means that I won't be sitting out here working 16-hour days trying to finish a book up and find myself back in that condition. So a big part of it is that Tony is determined not to break me Um and that is because she is one of my very dear friends, not just my publisher. However, that means that uh, from the time that I finish a book, the, the clock doesn't start ticking on when it's going to be re released until such time as I actually finish the book and hand it in, which is why, for example, um, Call, to, Call to Insurrection is not appearing anywhere in the Bain catalogs yet. Okay, after that... Um, Jacob and I are starting work on the sequel to the Gordian Protocol. Um, we're at a very early stage on that. Um, Eric Flint and I have exchanged notes and, and plot ideas on the next Crown novel. 
which we'll see Damien Harahap uh, interfacing with Anton Zilwicky and Victor Kasha and the Galaxy Better Hold On to Its Socks. Uh, that'll be going on over there. That will That is where we will be advancing whatever happens with the Mason alignment now that the war with the Salarian League is over. Okay. Um, my next solo honor project will probably be um, the story of Alfred Harrington's Marine career uh, before he met uh, Allison in uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, and it will show you... Uh, if anybody who has not read that novella in the beginnings uh, anthology really doesn't know Alfred whether they think they do or not. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's... Uh, the the truth is that honor gets her lethality naturally. She comes by it honestly, um, and uh, and basically Alfred decided that he needed to be a Navy doctor instead of a Marine sergeant because of how good he was at killing people. Um, and uh, beginnings, uh, the Beauty and the Beast kind of touches on that, um, and. Um, um, this will expand on it. Somewhere in there, I also have to do another book for Tor, which is going to probably come immediately after the Norfressa book. So I'm guessing that I will probably be working on the Alfred novel sometime next summer. Um, so we're probably looking at uh, a 2020 uh, release for it. Uh, I, I wrote between a million and three quarters of a million words a year for 20 plus years, 25 years. Um, and I'm 66 now and I have to cut back to maybe a half million words a year. Um, and that is going to, well, what can I say? That's going to affect the, the, the rate at which I, now those are finished words, by the way, that I'm talking about. Not, not just, okay, rough draft or background notes or anything like that. Um, so we are probably looking at a drop in my solo novel output. I am, however, looking at uh, several people that I will be doing collaborations with. And that is because I realized when I hit the wall that I'm not getting any younger and I have a lot of stories that I still want to tell. Uh, that I just plain am not going to have time to tell if I have to tell them all by myself. So I won't do a collaboration just to increase output, and I won't do a collaboration and expect, unless I expect the final product to be at least as good as either of us would have done alone. Having said that, I am developing relationships with some writers who I think are very good uh, who deserve more exposure, who maybe I can, I can help them tweak what they're doing a little bit, and who might be available to complete some of these story arcs if something happens to me without having to go out and recruit somebody for the job. Kind of, I'm visualizing this as maybe Todd McCaffrey to Annie. If you, uh, if you if you 
see what I'm saying here. Somebody who is intimately yeah. involved with the universes, who knows what I had in mind, who's worked with me, understands what I wanted the characters to do. They won't write a David Weber novel, but they may finish up a David Weber story. And I think well, that's a valid <laughs> distinction. I could speak for Tony Weisskopf and everyone else out there in saying that we would much prefer if you just stay around. <laughs> oh, I'm planning on it. I'm planning on it. But, you know, okay. I, I, turned, I, turned six, I turned 66 in 13 days. Um, and mm-hmm. for uh, an old an old fart, I'm still pretty spry when I'm not falling into cement floors. But I simply do not have the uh, the uh, the resiliency that I once had, um, and I need, on the one hand, to pace myself more, and on the other hand, I think I need to be more strategic in deciding where I'm going to spend time and what I'm going to do with that time. And um, I'm not. Eric Flint holds the all-time record. I think probably ever for being able to keep, you know, a bazillion authors in harness all going pretty much in the same direction at once. I don't think that I'm up to that, certainly not in a single shared universe, but I do think that I can find people like Jacob, like Joel, uh, like Chris Kennedy is working with me on uh, on uh, the sequel to um, Out of the Dark for Tor. Um, those relationships, I think, uh, Hello? Remember, I, I do you. shuffle off this sort of coil. Yes, yes, it is going to happen eventually, Tony. But when it happens, I won't have finished all of my story arcs, and I don't want to be—I don't want to be Richard <laughs> Adams, okay? Um, and um, yeah. it's like, yeah. okay, Robert Jordan was incredibly blessed in who they found to take over on on the Wheel of Time, but not everybody is that fortunate, and I want my readership to have the satisfaction of knowing what happens to their favorite characters. Not just having, well, you know, it just ended. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. So, There's and, and so I, much investment in your, in your world by so many people that uh, it, it makes sense. Well, it, it's kind of like um, to, to, to step over to tour for a minute uh, in the Safehold series, I don't know whether I'm going to write the final war against the Gibaba or not, because I'm not going to write it unless I figure I'll have time to write it. And if it takes me another four or five books to wrap up the, the pre-final war against the Gibaba story arc on Safehold, I'll be 71 by the time I get there. Okay, do I have do I do I have time to to invest in another five novel arc at one book a year? Do you see what I, you know and and I'm getting to the point where I need to be thinking in those in those terms because I think I have an obligation to my readers to not leave them hanging any more than I can help um at the at the 
at the end of of my writing career. Um, and I also yeah. uh, I also hope one okay one of the things that that is great about working with Tony is that Tony and I have known each other literally for 30 years next year. That's how long we have known each other, how long we have worked together. Tony has no qualms at all about saying, David, this doesn't work. Change it. All right? Sometimes you're at a point where somebody has been doing what I've been doing for as long as I've been doing it, where people are like, well, he knows what he's doing. Leave him alone. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he is worn out enough and tired enough that he's doing things that he wouldn't have done. For example, in uh, Shadow of Freedom, I, I really love the book. It does what it needs to do. But if I had not been so worn out when I was working on it, I would have given you the names of the institutions on the, the Polish planet and the Czech planet in Polish and in Czech, but then from there on out in narrative, I would have referred to them by their English translation name and just used the Polish or the Czech acronym. And I think it would have been far easier for an English language audience to keep track of what was going on if I'd done that. If I hadn't been as exhausted as I was, I would have realized that. And... I was in such bad shape and we were so far behind schedule that it wasn't really practical for Tony to sit down and give me the edit that we needed to do to fix that. But there comes a time when you have to realize as a writer, as a storyteller, that you are no longer doing your best work, unless you're Jack Williamson. Um, And... (laughs) You have to know that it's time time to let the body of your work stand. All right. I will still be writing for my own pleasure, if nothing else, until you know, like Richard Adams uh uh plague dogs, you know, until the dark comes down. I'll still be putting words on or photons into my computer or whatever just because that's what I do. But there will come a time, and I know there will when the words that I'm putting together are no longer the best that I have done. I am very comfortable with where this book came out. I think it and through Fiery Trials, the the, uh, Safehold book coming out in January, are two of the strongest books that I have done uh, in a long time. I had more time with them. I was more rested with them. I edited them more tightly. Tony, when I was in in your office uh, earlier this year, said to me, or maybe it was later, late last year, said to me, David, I read the manuscript looking for places where I could cut it, and I found three places where we need to add things. Um, and that, to me, is an indication that I did indeed, you know, edit tightly because Tony would have been pretty ruthless about telling me that under the production schedule that we had to work with. So I am going to try and ration myself to the writing that will be a quality of writing that I am satisfied with. 
and I am going to try and find people who can help me produce writing of the quality that I would be satisfied with to tell some of those other stories rather than trying to pack them all in as solo books and not being able to to really do justice to any of them because I'm doing too much. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. And then I, and then I plan to keep doing that for the next 15 to 20 years, okay? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Well, uh, what we have now is is a solo book, and it is incredibly strong, and readers are agreeing. Uh, it is uh, it is in the top ten of the New York Times bestselling list right now, and the book is Uncompromising Honor by David Weber, and it is at booksellers everywhere. Go out and get it if you haven't already. And, and David, thank you once again for sharing so much uh, of your time with us and um, and talking with us about uncompromising honor in the honorverse. You are so welcome. Thank you. And guys, I really do like this one. <laughs> that was part three of an interview with David Weber talking about uncompromising honor. Part two is available in last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The tall man untied his cloak and let it fall on the floor in a wet heap, revealing that he wasn't dressed for a fancy party. In muddy boots and plain, damp clothing, he looked like a regular traveler, nothing more. When he turned, a sheathed sword was visible at his side. Jagdish couldn't tell if that was the sword. You'd think that you'd feel something. The newcomer wore the token of the protector order on a chain around his neck. That insignia was like a warning sign proclaiming this man could kill whoever he felt like, whenever and however he desired. His skin was darkened by the sun, except for where it consisted of lines of white scar tissue. He scanned the room, seemingly taking everything in at once, and there was nothing polite in that gaze. It was as if he was passing judgment on them all. 
His eyes passed over Jagdish, and the warrior felt an involuntary shudder. Those eyes were cold, hard as the veteran warriors who'd seen so much that they were past feeling. This was a man completely devoid of mercy. Medea broke the uncomfortable silence. Can it be? Has our noble Lord Protector returned home after all these years? Now we have even more reason to celebrate. The newcomer began striding across the hall with purpose. The guests nervously moved aside, crowding toward the edges as if a tiger had just entered a pen full of sheep. The tale said Ashok Vidal had killed a thousand men. Seeing this one here, Jagdish could almost believe it. Is that really him? Jagdish whispered. I don't know. Hardly anyone ever met the bearer before they sent him off. When the crowd parted enough that Bidea could see him clearly, she called out, Ashok, it has been so long. Is that really you? The newcomer stopped in the middle of the room. He slowly turned, taking it all in. I have returned. You've grown up, Medea exclaimed. She was trying too hard to sound overjoyed. Jagdish could have sworn that he heard an element of fear in her words. At last, you've come back to us, and you've brought our precious Angruvadal home. Has your obligation ended? Is our house's time of suffering finally over? No. Ashok turned back to glare at the Thakur. The suffering of this house is only just beginning. It hardly seemed possible, but the room got even quieter. The uncomfortable silence dragged on for several seconds as Bidea's forced smile slowly died. What brings you back to your people, nephew? Are you on protector business? Tonight, I don't represent the order. Ashok seemed to mull that over for a moment before reaching up and lifting the chain over his head. He held the token in his hands, staring at it for a long time, as if trying to make a difficult decision. Horned and fanged, that predatory visage symbolized the law. The Inquisitors hid their faces behind it, but protectors wore it over their heart. Then Ashok dropped the amulet on the stone. It made an audible clang that made some of the guests jump. He looked up, dark eyes narrowed dangerously. I have come on a personal matter. Jagdish looked down at the discarded symbol, and then back up at the grim, determined man who'd put such a high-status thing aside and the experienced warrior felt a sick, sinking feeling in his stomach. Of course, nephew. There's no need to trouble our guests with family business. Let us retire and discuss it. No. Because this is a legal matter, there must be witnesses. Your guests will do. I require restitution. The Thakur tilted her head to the side. I am afraid I... Restitution. Ashok kept his voice down, low and dangerous. 
Like the rest of the crowd, Jagdish found himself leaning forward to hear his words. The law is clear that when one is deprived of his property, he may seek a suitable compensation from the offender. The bearer must be exhausted from his long journey. One of Medea's senior arbiters stepped forward. Allow us to prepare a room so that he may rest for silence, Ashok snarled. He didn't so much as raise his voice, but nearly every occupant of the hall took a nervous step away from him. Jagdish realized that Ashok's hands had curled into fists, and the man was trembling with anger. I require restitution. The giant Sankamur sensed the danger as well and moved forward, placing himself between his charge and Ashok. Medea held up one hand and Sankamur paused. Well, nephew, whatever is it that you require restitution for? A castless. Medea forced herself to laugh. It was a hollow sound. A castless? Oh, my. All this drama over a castless? I thought it was something important. She kept laughing. The sycophants and fools joined in. Even the privileged warriors who didn't understand the terrible danger in their midst chuckled nervously. Whatever is the matter, did one of my guests run over one of yours with their carriage tonight? The laughter in the room grew as they made the mistake of thinking Bidea had just ended the tension. But Jagdish saw more rage building behind Ashok's eyes. Whoever ran down a castless, please pay our Lord Protector for his dead, so that we may all return to our merriment. Restitution requires equal value. I demand a life for a life. The laughter tapered off. There was no joke here. Someone was about to die, and most of them were beginning to realize it. The guests exchanged nervous glances as they tried to figure out what Ashok was getting at. Jagdish slowly moved one hand to the dagger in his sash. Medea's expression turned hard. All the pretenses are gone, and now they could all see the iron fist of House Fadal. A life. Will any do, or do you seek one in particular? There were cries of outrage. Sankamur drew his blades. Ashok and Badea were staring at each other with icy hate. That is enough, Ashok. I know why you're here. Speak no more or wound this house forever, she warned. What is the meaning of this? demanded a senior judge from the capital. You may be a protector, but that doesn't allow you to insult your Thakur. What could possibly be so valuable about this castless you speak of? Bidea shook her head, almost as if she was pleading for Ashok's silence. But Ashok would not grant her that mercy. The castless was my mother. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. 
And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a first-class ticket for the outbound gravity boost to some excellent skiing in the orts. And a methane pond coal flash treatment on Titan, followed by a nice warm-up and tanning session on the way back with a transit inside the orbit of Mercury, plus a great basket heaping with thanks, gratitude, and praise for David Weber, author of Uncompromising Honor. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. The stars.